I was uh, watching TV the other day, and uh, I was excited to see a replay of the 2020 Ryder Cup uh, on TV. Pretty exciting. I don't know if there's any other golfers in the room that enjoy watching pro golf. It's been an interesting time, but this is a this is my favorite tournament of them all. Every four years, USA fields their best team against what they would call a, a world, an international delegation of the best players around the world. Over a few days, they pair up in these big teams. They start competing man on man and in, in kind of as pairs against other pairs. Oh, it's, it's amazing. This one was really exciting. On one of the most beautiful courses, Pete Dye design course called Whistling Straits. Just bear with me, all right? Don't, don't roll your eyes. <laughs> and I'm watching this course. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful course called Whistling Straits, uh, right on the coast of Lake Michigan. And I got to tell you, as soon as I saw some of those pictures and see, saw it on TV, all of a sudden, I just, the endorphin rush was massive. I was just like, oh my God, because I actually played this course. But four years prior to that, my brother-in-law called me up. He said, hey, what are you doing tonight? And I said, uh, what? He's like, come on over. Uh, your sister and I need to chat with you about something. I said, huh. Okay, you okay? He's like, everything's fine, everything's fine. I was like, wow, this is weird. I get over there, he starts telling me about being at an industry awards dinner, and uh, he won a trip to Whistling Straits, all-inclusive, four days of some of the finest golf and some of the finest holes. I said, oh man, you call me over to do that, you jerk? (laughs) Hey, good for you, I'm excited for you. He says, and my sister looked at me, she says, rather than me going, I want you to go with my brother, or with my husband. I was like, are you kidding? (laughs) Oh my God, I was lit up. I mean, for the month leading up to that trip, man, I was playing out every hole that <laughs> on that court. I was on the phone with my brother-in-law. We were talking about what we'd do at night. We said, hey, we're going to be flying in Chicago. Let's take up a, a, a baseball game, Wrigley Field. Let's do that. I said, that's a great idea. Come on. Let's do that. And then drove up, coast up to Wisconsin and spent a number of days playing the most unbelievable golf. You've heard of Kohler plumbing supplies and whatever. This is actually Kohler headquarters. So they've got this spa there that is world-renowned. Kohler spas. Danny and I with the cucumbers on our eyes at night. We're, we're enjoying living the dream in the spa. Golfing by day. I mean, I tell you, I felt like a rock star. Every, I mean, I was out on this course. They don't allow any power, courts, power carts on this course. So it's all walking. You have caddies that take your bags. And it just seems like every time you turn around, the, the, the coastline and the views, oh, it was just electrifying. Black-faced sheep roaming the course. I mean, it just went on and on. It was unreal. Intoxicating for a golfer. One of the most elite experiences I could personally think of. Pure pleasure. Let me ask you something. What experiences have you had over the course of your life that have lit you up like that. It doesn't have to be any fancy destination or exotic trip. 
but an experience that just had all five of your senses just tingling, where you just went, this, <laughs> this is as good as it gets. We need to think about that. I mean, I'm, I was just watching a video the other day on Instagram of this little kid. It's Christmas time. His parents roll in with a the box. They give him the box. They say, open it up. He opens it up, and it's a puppy. Maybe you've seen something like this, but that kid melts down. It so blew his senses. He was crying. He was screaming, dancing around, crying again. Like, it was just overwhelming how excited, how much pleasure he had in that moment of seeing what he had just given. Let me ask you something. What makes you feel alive? I remember talking to a guy. He was telling me about time when he and his wife were in New York. They're on Broadway. They took in Les Mis, Broadway show. He says, you know, I, I wasn't really excited about doing the big Broadway play. My wife, it was my wife's thing. He says, I got in there. And he says, I got taken in by that story. And just everything that was going on in that show. And he says, I found myself sobbing at times. I found myself at times clapping and cheering. I came out of that place like I had, every part of my body had felt something for the last two and a half hours. He says, it was such an amazing experience. He says, you want to talk about feeling alive. That show did it to me. One woman was telling me about her experience at a local bookstore. She says, I could go to the bookstore and be in there for hours every afternoon. She says, I have a favorite chair. I go in, I find books from my favorite authors. Coffee in hand, no kids screaming. I am alone. She says, I'm just flipping up. She says, oh, it's pure joy. I was talking with Yvonne and Trevor, our most recent, uh, you know, uh, they're a family in our community. You've seen Trevor up here doing charitable giving. We were sitting at the community lunch just a little while ago, and they were sharing about one of their latest, latest trips. They love to travel, love exploring, learning different parts of the world, experiencing different cultures. They began talking about the Sagrada Familia, this massive, unbelievably ornate cathedral in Barcelona that they had seen. Chatting with Yvonne, Yvonne says, oh, oh, oh. We are, I was talking about a place I'd love to go and see. And I said, I think that's one I would love to go and experience. She says, it's unbelievable. But you could just see, as they began talking about their trips, how excited, how animated, the learning, the experiences. Oh, you got to check this out. You haven't been to, you know, they, they gave us a few of those. You, you, what? You have never been to? I'm like, never. It's almost unforgivable some of the places they've been to that, to think that other people hadn't been there. I, a, a number of years ago, I had a conversation with Rob and Alita, another family from our community. They are the biggest foodies I've ever met. One night, we're sitting over at dinner, and they began sharing about some of their favorite restaurants locally and then other places they've gone to. And as they begin to experience, uh, talk about their experience, just so animated, talking about the different food. Rob prepares a lot of the food that we eat at our community lunches. This guy is foodie, big time. I can tell as he's talking about it, food experiences, fine dining, Michelin star, just makes them just, oh, oh. They just savor those moments. You know, if you think about the different things that make you feel alive, it might be hobbies, it might be 
passions, sports. You think about the relational moments. Experiences you've had with loved ones. Meaningful conversations. Maybe parties you were a part of. Parties you threw that got wild. Thinking about one New Year's Eve party that Kathy and I hosted. We got playing cards and next thing you know, I was next door dressed in one of Kathy's swimsuits asking for a corkscrew. This is, <laughs> I'd lost, obviously. I was about 12.30 in the morning. Some of those experiences and parties as we retell those stories with those friends that were there and the, and the laughs we've shared. Think about some of the most pleasurable sexual experiences you've had for those that it would apply to. Think about those for a moment. Those intimate moments from the initial conversation you had with your partner and the hinting of what might lead to it and the fun. And all of a sudden, as that thing culminated in this passionate experience together, <whistles> sorry, got a little sidetrack there. <laughs> The anticipation, the foreplay leading up to orgasm, like it just, ha, yeah, right? (laughs) Some people are looking at me a little strange right now. (laughs) Esther Perel defines any experience. Esther Perel, great therapist, well-known author and psychologist. She widens the definition of erotic as meaning as being anything that causes us to feel fully alive. I'd never heard that definition before. The erotic, anything that makes you feel fully alive. Like foreplay, these are the experiences that heighten and tingle our senses. They get our blood coursing through our veins. The endorphins flooding our system. Experiences like these, they lift our spirits. They recharge areas of our lives that have been depleted. Give, turn things into full color from black and white. Making what would otherwise would be just another boring day or another similar experience to something that becomes something very unique and special. Remarkable. That's the erotic Esther Perel says, it's missing in many, many people's lives. Let me ask you something. How much time, how much energy, how much resources do you intentionally invest in the erotic? In the things that make you feel alive? How how much of a priority do those things get in your calendar? Is it a regular consideration? when you're mapping out your day or your week or your month? How often do you just intentionally set aside time and resources specifically for the sake of pleasure? Well, hey, if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I do, I do all the time. Well, hey, congrats to you. Hats off. (laughs) Jerk. Take the morning off. You know what? I just give you permission. Walk right out there. Or, in fact, come and join me on stage. You can help teach us how. Because I'll be honest. For me, 
this is a tough subject for me. It's the weirdest thing. I would say I've got a conflicted relationship with pleasure. Some of it is just brought on by some unfortunate chapters of life, some setbacks, some things we didn't anticipate happening that just end up stealing so much of our time, our resources, our energy. But there's other reasons too. And I'm betting that that might be your story too. Over the last little while, I've been asking this question. How much time and energy and resources do you give to feeling pleasure in your life? And you know what? Not one person I asked the question of said, I feel like I I do it justice. I really feel like I've given it enough. I'm really on top of this one. Not one. There's this conflicted kind of thing. No one will say it's a bad idea. Everyone says, oh, I love feeling pleasure. When I ask why, oh man, there's a million reasons why. But they kind of fall into a couple categories that I want to talk about this morning. Why don't we prioritize pleasure more? I want to give you two reasons that I think show up, especially in a community like ours here, for those on the spiritual journey. One is, a, is one that I would hear whether you're a part of a spiritual community or not, I think. And that is this mindset that pleasure is a luxury. It's not a necessity. I mean, let's face it, in a day-in, day-out grind, there's bills to pay, there's often mouths to feed, depending on your chapter of life, jobs to get done, houses to clean, there's, there's saving for the future, there's considerations, kind of, it's like, refuse the instant gratification and And one day you're going to get that thing, but for now we've got work to get done. We've got to save, we've got to plan, we've got to focus, we've got to acquire. Pleasure can seem like a luxury, can't it? At times. It's not a necessity, is it? We've told this story recently, and I want to tell it again. It's a story of a Russian peasant who was promised the deed to as much land as he could run across over the course of a day. You can imagine a poor peasant who never, ever imagined even the thought of owning land. When sun came up, that peasant began running. You can just imagine the thoughts going through his mind, looking around at the land that was now going to be called his, the, the, the herds that he could have, the, the wealth that his family could experience for the first time ever. And that guy, he just ran as fiercely and as hard as he could. He got to a point in the day where he began looking back, kind of figuring out where the sun was, because the rule was you had to be back at your origin, the, at the place where you started before sundown, or the deal was off. So he began watching the sun, making sure, thinking about how far he'd come, how much time it'd take to get back. At one point, I mean, he's out of breath, but he's going, man, I, I, I think I better turn around. I better, I better start heading back. So he does. And he's running back. But now, boy, he is slowing down. He's getting tired. He's watching that sun. He's going, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. He, and he's, he just run and run and run and run and stops, gets his breath, and then he keeps going. Finally, he gets back. And you know what? There's still a fair amount of sun left. He's thinking, I could do more. And so he takes off in another direction. 
He's going, I love the look of that land over there. So he starts running. Now he's really watching that sun. He's, he's running as hard as he can. He gets out there and he's looking back. He's going, oh, I got I to gotta turn around now. He turns around and he now is, is coming for home. And that sun is just dropping. He is exerting every amount of energy that he can to get back to that start line. And just as that sun is about to go down, he crosses the finish line. The relief. He's thinking about all the land that's his. And as the Russian legend goes, he falls over and dies. Oh. I remember reading that legend going, oh, hate that story. This legend was used as a warning to people who were so concern- consumed by the long-term and practical focus of their lives. People lost their lives in the process before they could enjoy them. They chased, chased, chased before they could actually sit and enjoy all the fruit, all, all the spoils of their toil. Some didn't die Some just lost their marriages in the process. The geese are uh, happy out there. That's great. Sorry, if you're listening online, we can just hear geese honking overhead. Better than the sound of jets anyways, hey? Some, some, Some didn't lose their lives. Some lost their marriages in the process. Some lost relationship with their kids because they were so involved and focused on the chase, what one day they would get. It was all about the chase. There's a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes that records a man's chase for significance, his hunt for happiness. And this guy did it well. They think his name was Solomon who wrote this thing, but it writes about Solomon. He was a king. And this, this king, I mean, if you think about Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, if you think about some of the big power brokers of the world and all that they possess, the yachts, the people, the houses, the car, you name it, King Solomon would have dwarfed them all. He had it all. He was all about the acquisition. And yet he was despondent. This is a guy who ran night and day trying to accumulate, got to the end of the road, got to this point in life where he's looking back now and he's going, I don't know what other roads there are to go down. I have chased down every possible thing that I think would be exciting and meaningful. And he says, it's all meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind was his words. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he shares his observations that caused his disillusionment. He says, I'm looking around. He said, everything can be going so well for some people. They're getting so much, and then hard times come, and it just gets wiped out. He says, you work so hard to get into a certain position within a company within a business, and then fools are put in charge. 
said, we accumulate all these things, but we can't take anything with us when we die. So all that we have accumulated gets handed off, left in the hands of people who don't appreciate what they've been given, and it spoils them, it wrecks them. He just starts pointing to all these different things that just make all the chase seem so meaningless. It's like we're running for that carrot and that carrot never really lands and really feels great. The writer walks through all these observations and just outlines all the different ways that the chase has brought nothing but heartache. It's a warning to readers, I believe, to be careful because you can run. You can chase success. You can accumulate a lot of stuff but you might not like what's waiting for you at the end. In fact, some of us will never get there. I don't know if it was William Wallace that said this, but we've watched it in the Braveheart movie, right? He says, we'll all die, but not all of us will truly live. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let me ask you that question again. Do you feel like you're truly living right now? So there's this real practical, pragmatic mindset that I think gets in the way of experiencing pleasure that says pleasure is a luxury and there's more important things to worry about. We'll get to that one day. We'll get to it when the time is right. Once this X, Y, and Z happens. So that pleasure is a luxury mindset is one reason, I think, that many of us don't get there or prioritize it. But there's another force that I think many of us have experienced, especially in a community, a spiritual community of any sort. And uh, it's weird. Probably you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but there's this kind of message um, that emanates from religion from church, especially from the tradition that I've been a part of in Christianity. And that is that somehow pleasure is not spiritual. It's, in some ways, it's antithetical to spirituality. Pleasure is somehow wrong. And I pick this up, not just from people within the church, but people outside the church that look into the church and say, this is what you guys think about pleasure. Pick it up. Just, they would never come out and say it that way, but they kind of have that feeling. Like if you're really spiritual, you won't be driving beautiful cars or living in a nice home. At least you shouldn't be. I can watch it right now and be, you know, and hey, look at it. I got a problem with a lot of American religion. But man, whenever someone down there is part of some church or whatever and they're driving a nice car, the world freaks out. They're going, that is not right because that's not what that's about. Right? There's this kind of feeling that pleasure is dangerous. Spirituality is opposed to pleasure and fun 
It's against those things that make us love and enjoy life here and now. Any, any, anyone believe me, what I'm saying here? Have you felt this at times? Have you watched it? Even when I was talking about sex a few minutes ago, I got people rolling their eyes back going, what the heck? That doesn't belong in here. And something feels awkward about talking about sex in church. What's that about? Why is that? What's really interesting is when you do the homework to see what the Bible has to say about pleasure, it's actually quite filled with glowing endorsements for finding pleasure in life. I'm not going to go into it this morning. Vince did a message a while back called History Versus Pleasure. And I would encourage you, if you wouldn't want to know what the Bible, what kinds of things the Bible says about experiencing the erotic in life, the things that make you feel alive, go back and listen to that message. It's worth listening to. The question then becomes, if, it's, if the message is not coming from the Bible that says pleasure is kind of a bad thing, then where did it come from? Where did this start? Why does church and pleasure seem to have a conflicted relationship? If you look back into the history of the church, sadly, you'll find that the early church fathers, many of the early writers who, who developed a lot of our beliefs, a lot of our doctrines that have been embraced by the church for hundreds of years, they were very anti-pleasure. They believed it was evil. Then the question is, well, why did they believe it? Why did they all of a sudden start promoting this? Scholars believe that it wasn't some spiritual enlightenment. It was the fact that they were likely very influenced by the common popular philosophies of their day. Experts point to three interwoven philosophical threads that seemed to do it in, had a problem with pleasure. One was the dualistic cosmology of Plato. I won't bore you with it, but it believed that our souls and minds are at war with our bodies. Our souls and our minds, the real spiritual things, are at war with our bodies who seem to want to do all these sinful things. And you've got to win the war against your body. Your body's going to lead you astray. It's going to cause you all kinds of evil. There was also the Stoic philosophy of the early Greco-Roman culture that believed nothing should be done for the sake of pleasure. And then there was the Persian Gnostic tradition, what is also known as Gnosticism. This was a belief that demons created the world, that they created sex, and they created your body. And within all of that, your soul was trapped. And the only way you could free your soul, free your spirit, from the bondage of the body was by denying the flesh, denying any kind of pleasurable desire. So you got to crucify the flesh. And man, this takes me back to early days in my church. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? <laughs> Within three centuries after Jesus, they figured these influences had combined to seduce Christian thinkers into a rampant rejection of human sexuality and pleasure. It took three centuries. Now, fast forward, one more interesting tidbit. You get to a guy named Nietzsche. He's a German philosopher. And he was observing the way people seem to operate around this thing called pleasure. Quickly, and I'm going to get to a point here. 
he noticed three different archetypes. He could look over a group of people and they would typically, he would think, fall into three different categories. One were the masters. And one, well, they weren't literally masters, but they had a master's mindset. They were unaffected by the groupthink. They were, they were living to their own, the beat of their own drums. These were people that knew what they want in, wanted in life. And they would go after it without apology. They weren't waiting for permission. They were taking the bull by the horns. They would get out there. And they seemed to know what they wanted and what brought them pleasure. And they would go after it without apology. They would wear the clothes that made them feel good. They would listen to the music they love. They would do the things that they wanted to do. Even if people around them were criticizing them, saying, what are they doing? They didn't care. These are the masters. He also noticed another group of people that he called the last man. This was what he called the quintessential mediocre man or woman. This is the person that was just, had very few creative urges, just happy if he didn't have to think too hard. Just tell him what to do, where to go, and he'll do the minimum needed to fall in line. So a lot of his life wasn't necessarily the way he would have wanted it and probably wasn't bringing him a lot of pleasure, but there was no resistance and no one was getting on his case. So he just kind of did what he was told. And he kind of followed status quo. There was a third category that Nietzsche noticed, and this was what he called the slave. This was, this was a person that perhaps knew what they wanted, but always seemed to be under the thumb of someone else, never able to really live out their own pleasures and the things that they wanted. All they could see around them were the people that seemed to have what they wanted. He called this the slave. The slave was always filled with resentment. Oh, so angry. Feelings of hatred of their own lives feelings of impotence in the face of an external reality that someone else got what they want and they couldn't get it. Now, I, I, I share these and, and, and the slave and the last man kind of made up what Nietzsche called the herd. And out of the herd sprung what he called a herd morality that actually had a way of kind of building a set of beliefs that said, hey, look it. If you want to know what's really godly, It's what we, the herd, have. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They had a way of developing a morality that actually celebrated those that didn't have anything and villainizing the person that did have something. Nietzsche points to certain parables in the Bible that sound oddly like a slave being very resentful, who says, oh yeah, it's harder for, for a rich man to enter the eye of a needle. Or, okay, yeah, camera, sir. So, yeah, okay, you know the story. Uh, basically what he says is, rich man getting to heaven, it's going to be very difficult for them. Interesting. He just begins to see how maybe over time, even within religious circles, the slave mentality, not being able to perhaps experience pleasure, maybe for whatever reason, they felt conflicted with it, but then started watching these other people experience it. And the resentment builds. I think that was 18th century. 
I think that still bleeds into our culture today. If you take a cross-section, you go on TV and you watch some of these televangelists preaching, not, not the prosperity ones, but others, they are so down on anyone that's out there living with excitement and aliveness and they're erotic in their lives. They're going, thumbs down. God is not happy with that. I'll tell you this. I was steeped in that type of teaching. And there is a part of me that celebrates when I'm giving of my life to care for others. And there's a part of me that's conflicted when I say, you know what? No, sorry, my time. If I look back over my life, I've had good friends who learned how to honor the erotic in their lives. Learn the kind of things that made them feel alive. And they would often be saying, come on, Jeff, we're going this weekend. I'm going, I can't. They said, you didn't even hear what I said. You didn't even know what I'm going to invite you to do. I said, I don't think I can. See, you need to stop that. You're coming. I said, ah, I, you know what? There's other things I got to get. No, Jeff, when are you ever going to say yes to you? I remember having a big argument with one of my best friends at one time. He said, you got a problem with just saying yes to you. I said, oh, no, no, no. I, I say yes. Oh, really? Oh. Then he started pushing me. I knew down deep I have a problem with it. But perhaps it's this part. Some subliminal thing that has a problem with saying sometimes you've got to really prioritize what you want. And it's okay. I look back at it now and I'm going, yeah, I've been bit by it and I'm not sure that it served me well. Because there are large chunks of my life that have moved into this mundane black and white world where it's just all I can do to put one foot in front of the other again. Groundhog Day. Have you ever felt that? At one point in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, we think, he comes back and he shares his new perspective of the chase and finding some kind of pleasure. He says, there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. When I read this, what I hear is, amidst all of the toil and the grind and the work that life involves, there needs to be many moments of temporary pleasure. Where we prioritize stopping and we prioritize engaging in the experiences and the activities that feed our souls. That will hit our pleasure sensors, senses, centers, one of those. <laughs> or all of them. I don't know about you, but I, w- I want to live. I want to be among those that can look back and say, yeah, I lived. So, Gregory, your song was bang on, man. Just bang on. How about you? Let me ask you something. Have you been gripped by the practicality? 
of the chase? Have you felt like maybe luxury is an option? Sorry. Pleasure is a luxury. (laughs) Have you maybe pushed it away, saying there's more important things and got into that pattern? Maybe you've been bit by some kind of misguided morality that's made you feel guilty for wanting or prioritizing pleasure. I would just challenge you to give that some thought. What are the things that make you feel alive? Over the last couple of weeks, I've been getting ready for this message. Um, I've been thinking about the things on my list that make me feel alive. Now, they can be big things. The Whistling Straits golf, golf uh, trips, they don't come along all that often. But I do recognize that just making a meal together with my wife, where we're together in the kitchen making one of our favorites, even better when our boys are there and they're involved too. Oh, man. You know, this might sound strange, but I love mowing my lawn. Uh, Kathy and I went for a walk yesterday, and we saw some grass that was poking through the snow, and it was turning green. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to mow the lawn. <laughs> She's like, I could have swore you said you like it. And I said, I do. About three quarters of the way in, after I'm home and I'm looking back over that lawn, and the stripes forming, oh, and then the cold beer that's waiting, and I sit on the deck, and I just look out over it, over my kingdom. (laughs) Sunset dog walks on warm evenings. We don't get many of them. I always tell Kathy when I I said, you feel that? (sighs) I'm in a t-shirt, and I'm warm, and it's at night. I go, oh, we got to savor these, Kathy. We don't get many of these. I think about the romantic, spontaneous overnighters that I get with Kathy every now and then where we just say, let's go. Let's get away. Come on. Wings and beer with close friends. My Sunday night after hockey, sitting down with the boys, chirping them about the way they played. Oh. Washing my truck. Weird. renovation project, a glass of wine and a good movie with my wife. Oh, it just makes me feel alive. What do we got going on tonight? Nothing? What makes you feel alive? You have a list? What the frick are you waiting for? Get that list going. Here's what we believe. Healthy spirituality promotes lives that feel alive. The erotic. It promotes more of that, not less. And not just to lead you into some life of narcissism that says it's all about me. Nuh-uh. We believe that when we feel alive, when we are in that place where we are recharged and excited, our capacity to take water to our world exponentially grows. When I have honored myself, I am able to look at my neighbor and say, now what do you need? Come on. Come on. Let's go. Let's take care of that. I have something to give. I have something to to leverage 
Even sometimes when I don't have it to give, I can give. But boy, I tell you, when I honor this part of me, and I think you know this to be true, good things happen. All right, I'm done there. Uh, Get on the list. Develop that list. Ask yourself, why haven't you been honoring the list? Maybe you can spot something that stood in the way. 